with you all. If you have a Bible, which I hope you do, turn to John 16. We're going to look at verses 16 through 24 this morning. Um, let me once again welcome any first-time guests with us this morning. We are happy to have you here. Uh, my name is Tyler Cash. I serve as uh, the lead pastor of this uh, congregation that gathers under the name of Christ Covenant Fellowship, and uh, we're, we're happy to have you here with us. Um, if you have questions about our church, I uh, look forward to uh, seeing you, talking to you after the service. But we've been going through the gospel of Jesus according to John, uh, his account here, and we find ourselves today in John 16, 16 through 24, and I'm going to read this for us. I'll be preaching from the ESV. Uh, if you need a copy of God's Word, uh, we have some there at the back at the connection table. So I'm going to read this for us, and then I'm going to pray and ask for God's help, and then we will look at His Word today. So John 16, verse 16, would you hear now the Word of God? A little while... And you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Uh, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Father, we are grateful for your kindness and your mercy toward us. We are grateful that we get to gather today as your people, called out from the world, called out from darkness, saved from the wrath that our sin deserves. And we trust that you will hold us fast. And we pray and we ask, God, that you would use this text to strengthen our faith, to grow us in godliness, uh, to draw those who may be far from you because of their rebellion to the wonderful salvation that is in and through Christ and Christ alone. Lord, would you be with those that are weary and heavy laden? Would you strengthen them today? May their joy be complete. May we see through this text how we are promised eternal joy 
in and through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, we pray for those that are affected by these fires here in our community. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring a stop to them uh, and that your purpose for them would be fulfilled. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of today's sermon is The Temporal Sorrow That Produces Eternal Joy. The Temporal Sorrow That Produces Eternal Joy. And we're going to talk a lot about joy, what joy actually is and how it can be found eternally in Christ. But before we do, I want to make sure that we all have the same definition of joy. Oftentimes we use words and people mean different things by them. So I want to paint a picture for us to see what joy is according to the Bible. So here's my definition. Biblical joy is the act of consciously choosing to respond to external circumstances with inner contentment and satisfaction. It's the conscious decision to respond to external circumstances with inner contentment and satisfaction. This life is full of temporal sorrows, isn't it? I mean, we've all had things probably this week that we did not like. Uh, there's ongoing sorrow. There's things in our life that happen that are difficult, that are hard to bear, from sickness to financial struggles to hardships in our lives, from relational difficulties. I mean, we all can say that we have been through the ringer in this life if we've lived any amount of time. Life gets difficult. Life is hard. Uh, we turn on the news and we see the, the problems out there sometimes that, that we think like, wow, those difficulties are so far removed from me, but then they start to hit home. And we realize that we are not far from trial. And listen, Christians are not supposed to pretend that everything is okay all the time. God gave us feelings. He gave us emotions. If you read through the Psalms, you'll see the highs and lows of the Christian life. I mean, things get difficult. We are to respond to the difficulties. Uh, we're not supposed to retreat to stoicism and just be stoics that uh, never respond emotionally to anything. No, we are given emotions for a reason. But there is a difference between happiness and joy. See, our happiness is based upon our happenings, what's happening around us, uh, what we see in the world, uh, what's happening in the home, uh, what's going on within our circumstances. I mean, that's where happiness is found. But see, joy is something that is internal. It's something that is within us. It is a choice to respond to those external happenings with, I may not like, but I do trust that God's will will prevail. And I believe that because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, because of the promise that we have as Christians, that we can truly have eternal joy. I believe that we as God's people are called to have joy 
to be a people that are set apart, that look at the things of this world, the trials of our lives, and look to a greater reason for them all. And I believe that this text, these verses in front of us, are a great example of what Jesus instructs us as his people as we get to look back to how he instructed his disciples in midst of their hardest day. We are still here in the 24-hour period before Jesus' death. Uh, Jesus has been guiding his disciples, teaching them all that they need to know before he dies, before that they are then left without the physical presence of their Savior. What Jesus does here is he moves from, as we looked at the last couple of weeks, the teaching of the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit is going to come when Christ ascends and when he sends the Spirit to then be the helper that they need. He says the Spirit is going to be better for you because the Spirit is going to be in all of you. So Jesus' presence will not be limited to his physical presence, his ability to be with a certain group of people. Rather, instead, his presence is with each and every Christian at all time through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That is a good gift to us as Christ's people. And so here in these verses... We see that as Jesus is about to move into John 17, we'll see the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays to the Father. We're actually going to look at John 17 through Advent and and look at the way that Christ actually brings true unity. And what is true unity? And we'll we'll look through the high priestly prayer and Jesus' prayer for his people to, to come to that over the four weeks of Advent. But here, before Jesus arrives in that time, we see Jesus promises temporal sorrow. Look at verses 16 through 18 with me. Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is it that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. So, I mean, it's kind of a riddle, right? It's it's confusing even to read. Now, think specifically how these disciples would have taken this because they didn't know the end of the story. See, we can understand a little bit better because why? We have the New Testament. Uh, We know what is to come. But these men in this situation were perplexed. And he's preparing his disciples for his imminent death, which will happen in less than 24 hours here. These disciples are confused. Uh, It's probably part of just confusion and then probably part I just don't want to understand. We've all had those moments, haven't we? Like someone says something and like, yeah, I don't really like what you're saying, so I'm going to choose not to truly understand what you're saying. Uh, Kids do that often. And these men have no category for a Messiah that will die. Uh, that's, That's not in their vocabulary. 
They don't have a mental category for it. The idea that their Messiah will come, will die, to then bring the peace, the hope, the love, the true joy uh, that they were promised through their lives, I mean, that's a foreign concept to them. Even though Jesus has been telling them over and over and over and over again, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to the Father. You will not come. There's going to be something that happens that you will not understand when you see me lifted up. You will not fully comprehend. This phrase, a little while, uh, seems to be the cause of their confusion, doesn't it? They're like, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. And I believe that Jesus is telling his disciples that they won't see him for a little while after his death. But then they will see him again after his resurrection. They'll see him. He appears to them. If you recall, he spends 40 days with them. He's going to appear to show himself to a selected few. The reason for my position here largely rests in the usage of the word see here. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. So the Greek, which is the New Testament's original language, uses two different words that are translated see. This is important because I think this is important because it, it helps us to see what Jesus is telling his disciples, which then applies to us now. So the first is our basic use of the word see. It's like, I see you. It's I can physically see you. So Jesus is telling the disciples that you're not going to physically see me. The second denotes deliberate contemplation conjoined with mental or spiritual interest. We might say, use this as a way to say that now we see, we understand something. Does that make sense? Shake your head if it does. We see it like, okay, I understand now what you were trying to teach me. The vision of wondering contemplation in which they observed little by little the outward manifestation of the Lord was changed and transfigured into sight, in which they seized at once intuitively all that Christ was, writes one commentator. So they did not understand at first by looking the physical presence of Christ, who Christ was fully. After the resurrection, they could then see and understand who Jesus was. They then see the glorified presence of the resurrected Christ. They then know that all that Christ has taught them is true. The resurrection that is to come will open their eyes to who Jesus really is. They will then mentally comprehend the truth of Jesus in a way that they could not comprehend before. And then Jesus sends his spirit. He, he comforts, teaches, and puts all the pieces together so they see the full picture 
and then are enabled to write the New Testament. But before they arrive at this point, before they can get to this realization, what's going to happen? There's sorrow. There's trouble ahead. There is a hard journey to endure. And Jesus lovingly aims to prepare them for the hardship ahead. And let me just say this here. Jesus is an honest Savior, isn't he? Jesus is not promised something and fails to deliver. Jesus is not afraid to tell these men of the sorrows ahead because he knows that the promise of everlasting joy is what follows. And that is the same for us in the Christian life. No one's ever said, and if they have, they're wrong, that the Christian life is easy. It's hard. It's tough. We looked a couple weeks back when Jesus says, the world will hate you. And what that means is that if you are set apart as Christians are supposed to be set apart, the world is going to look at you different. If you take a stand on this book, then even so-called Christians are going to look at you different. It's going to be trials, tribulations. We live in a fallen world, friends. But there is hope and there is everlasting joy for those who are in Christ. And Jesus says here in verses 19 and 20, he knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. This is one of those situations where Jesus doesn't provide a direct answer to the question. He doesn't give them the exact answer to their inquiry. Instead, what he does is he tells them what he wants them to know here. He teaches them what to expect while they wait. Man, that's a profound truth that we all need to grab hold. They want to know, like, what does a little while mean, Jesus? How long will this last? Like, how long am I going to go through this sorrow that you speak of? How long are things going to get difficult? And he tells them, here's what you can expect while you wait. He gives three things. One, he says, you're going to weep. Then he says, you're going to lament. Now, weeping and lamenting were terms in the Old Testament that were used for uh, the, when someone would die, uh, people would weep. There would be an outward expression. Lamenting would be deep sorrow expressed outwardly, uh, a show of, of, of deep sorrow, of, of pain. So this is the outward expression of the pain that they will have. So once again, we see that Jesus doesn't say, hey, don't do those things. He says, no, you're going to have these feelings. You will weep. You will lament. 
And then he goes on and says, you will be sorrowful. Now, sorrowful means full of sorrow. In other words, it means there's no room for anything else. Like, you're going to be so engulfed in pain and internal agony that there will be no room for anything else. It denotes an unmovable internal pain. The point is, this situation would be emotionally unbearable for a moment. It was going to be hard for them to get through. It was going to be a tough mountain to climb. It was going to be a, a deep valley of despair. They were going to be face to face with the hardest thing they've ever dealt with. And to add injury to insult, Jesus says that while they are at their lowest, the world will be at their highest. The world is going to rejoice. The world will rejoice at the death of Jesus. See, the world thought they won. They thought, we, we got him. We put an end to this Jesus guy that keeps pointing people to the true God rather than the laws of the Pharisees rather than the Roman authorities, rather than the gods of self, the gods of the day. We got him. He's dead. And they rejoiced at that. I want you to imagine for a moment the sadness these disciples felt, the pain that they endured. And their Savior that was promised was gone. Their Messiah, their king, was killed. Their king was, was unarmed. I mean, they probably felt foolish, like they maybe wasted these three years. They probably felt alone. We see that later. They felt isolated. They were scared. The world was celebrating, and these men were crushed. They were destroyed. While different, there are many similarities for us in the Christian life today. Many similarities to the world's rejoicing while Christians weep and lament. A couple examples of these would be while thousands of babies are murdered in the womb, the world rejoices. Christians weep. We lament. While homosexuality and gender dysphoria are encouraged and celebrated, the world rejoices and Christians lament. We weep. While pornography has become a normal part of our society, Christians, true Christians, should lament, should weep. See, true Christians mourn as we see the evil in the world. We weep and we lament because we know that these atrocities are destructive and are marks of living in a fallen and broken world. Young people, I want you to listen to me and I want you to look at me now. There 
is a sense that you will go through this world and there are things that you need to feel sorrow for. You, you need to lament. You need to weep. You need to not rejoice in the things of the world. You need to trust your parents' guidance. You need to trust the biblical instruction. The things that the world celebrates are destructive and will lead to destruction. Trust God's word. If you have parents that are pointing you to Christ, let me encourage you. They are godly parents. Listen to them. Allow them to lead you well. Jesus ensures these disciples and us that our sorrow is not everlasting. Listen, when I was studying this text last week, I mean, it was just overwhelming. There was points in this sermon preparation where I was just overwhelmed by joy that, that God would give us this promise that, that he would tell us, although there are many things in this world that provide the opportunity to weep and lament, to feel sorrow, there is everlasting joy in Christ. I mean, it is hope that is beyond anything that we can ever imagine. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. That turn into means it will birth. It will become. It will produce. Now, once again, this is specifically related to the disciples and the fact that they will see the resurrected Jesus. Their, sh- their sorrow is short-lived because what brought them temporal sorrow will bring them eternal joy. For us, we have hope that Christ is alive. Amen? He is alive. We, too, will see him again. We will see the resurrected Christ. Jesus provides the perfect illustration here. He's the perfect teacher. And what better illustration than what he gives us in verse 21? He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. And when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. All my mamas said, amen. Birth is difficult. It's hard. Um, I've witnessed uh, three births from my wife, and I'm, I'm just incredibly impressed by her every time I see this. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. There's agony. There's pain. There's sorrow. There's, I don't know if I can do this. But then... It's like in a moment, like it's just gone. That baby is there. Now there's pain that may come later. (laughs) There is something special. You hold that child, that human, in your arms, that cry of that child, that new life is born. And there's something that happens within all that are there. I mean, I I felt it too. Much more does the woman that is giving birth. The reward of the difficulty is the beautiful baby that is brought into this world. And furthermore, 
The Old Testament uses the combination of intense suffering and revealed joy at childbirth as a common illustration of the redemption of God's people. So Jesus not only picks the the greatest human illustration, he's actually pointing back to redemptive history. He's showing that he himself is the fulfillment of prophecy here. And I want you to look here with me. So turn back to Isaiah 26, 16 through 21. I'll give you a moment. I had it marked, so I cheated a little bit. Isaiah 26, 16 through 21. I want you to see this for yourself. I want to read this for us. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth. So there's the illustration again. So were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we were worth, but we have given birth to wind. We've accomplished no deliverance in the earth. The inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, into your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the furious pass by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. Get this illustration here of God's people being delivered just as a woman giving birth. So Jesus is saying here, I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. I am the one who will deliver my people through my death. The sorrow that is to come that is like the pain of childbirth will produce eternal, everlasting joy. And that joy is eternal. It is eternal joy. Look here at verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And look at this. I mean, this right here is just phenomenal. And no one will take your joy from you. Amen. This is a joy that is everlasting. This is a joy that cannot be taken by anyone or anything. This is a joy that will outlast all things on this earth. So just like a woman giving birth has temporal sorrow, the disciples will have temporal sorrow as well, but Jesus will see them again in their hearts meaning their inner being will rejoice. John 20, 20 shows us that, right? At the return of Christ, it says that they gladly rejoiced. They received Jesus with rejoicing, with glad hearts, some translations say. And Jesus says, no one will take this from you. 
You, nobody. He will hold us fast. He will ensure that his people will reach the intended destination. Did the New Testament writers think this was true? I mean, can we look at those that came after this moment and say, this is what they believe, so we can believe it too? I'll point out a couple of references for us. 1 Peter 1.8, Peter, who was there, right, listening to this. Here's what he writes. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So Peter continued in this joy, and he continued preaching this type of joy. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. In case you didn't get it the first time, rejoice. Have joy. And where's our joy found? Come on, in the Lord. It's in the Lord. It's not in anything else. It's not in our circumstances. It's not in temporal sorrows. Our happiness might be found there. Sure, we're happy sometimes, we're sad sometimes. But joy that's internal and everlasting is only found in who? In the Lord, in Christ. Romans 15, 13, the Apostle Paul again, may the God of hope, this is a benediction he's given to them, fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. See, we can get through anything if we have hope, right? If we see like a light at the end of the tunnel, we can get through just about anything. And Christian, let me tell you, there is light, everlasting, eternal light. Jesus himself is the reward. We've talked about this before, but if you're looking for anything else to be your reward in heaven outside of Christ and Christ himself, God himself, the triune God, then you are looking for a, an unfound hope. The reward of heaven is God. God is the reward. We get to be with our creator forever. And if that's not good news to you, you might misunderstand the gospel. Sure, there are many benefits and blessings, but that's the periphery. We have hope, Christ, that we will be with our Savior forever, eternally. James 1, 2 reminds us, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, meaning like you're going to go through some stuff. When you go through stuff, when you go through situations that are difficult, hard to comprehend, consider it joy because it's actually producing endurance. It's actually sanctifying you. It's actually working for your benefits. All things work together for good for those whom love God. And why do we love God? Because he first loved us. 
So we've been called to live different. We've been called to look at this world rightly, understanding that we as God's people, we do understand that things are not the way they're intended to be. But we have joy eternal because we know that Christ will come and return one day and will make all things new. So he gives us some instructions here. He says in verse 23, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Now in that day refers to the last days, the time from Christ's resurrection, his ascension, uh, till his final return. So when you see that phrase, in that day or the last, like that's, that's what it's talking about. That's really the realized eschaton, the end of time that we are now in. We are in the last days. Those last days could last another thousand years. We don't know the return of Christ, but according to Scripture, these are the last days. So he says here, in that day, you will not ask me. And I think this kind of has two different meanings here. Uh, one, they're not going to have to ask him uh, about some of the things that they've been asking him. So the very real practical, tangible, immediate results of this are like, think back to all that they've been asking Jesus up to this point. Like, why can't we go with you? Where are you going? Where? All these different things. Like, what do you mean you're leaving? What do you mean? Now they're going to understand. They're going to see. But I also think that what Jesus is saying here is that you may also ask through me what you haven't been doing before. You're not going to ask me anymore. I'm going to then be your mediator. Now, I want to say, too, that Jesus is not giving a blank check once again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Not a blank check to just say, well, Jesus said this, and so now anything I ask in Jesus' name will be done. It's not what's being said here. He says in verse 24, until now you've asked nothing in my name, so you haven't been doing this. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So here's what he's saying. He's saying now that when they talk to God, they can go directly to God through Christ. See, Christ is now the mediator. He mediates on our behalf while he's here. He fulfills the law perfectly. Then he dies the sinner's death that he doesn't deserve, but we all deserve. So he dies. He mediates on our effect there. But then where is he seated now? The right hand of the Father. He's our advocate. He's our mediator. He's mediating on behalf of the saints. So they had not looked to Christ as mediator yet. And those things that they now pray through Christ as their mediator that are according to his will, his business, his work will be done. They will be done. Now there's many things that are Christ's work, right? We can think of many things. We could spend a whole sermon talking about that. But I want to point out one here, and that is the sanctification of his bride, the church. 
the sanctification of his people, because I think that most directly connects with this idea of sorrow and having joy eternal. Ephesians 5, Paul writes, verse 25, he says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, that's, a, uh, that's just a bonus, all right? A little token, take that with you. Make sure you do that well, okay? Ensure that you are doing this. We're called to love our wives as Christ has loved the church. He gave himself up for her. We sacrifice. But here's why. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that, so we get, a, we get a reason why, he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Everybody get that? So Christ's presentation, receipt of the church will be a church without blemish, without spot. And there's sanctification that is happening. It's only through Christ and his blood. But he's working in and through each and every one of us, through our situations, through the spirit, to bring us to this point of presentation. We are the bride of Christ. If you've ever been to a wedding, if you're married, there is a presentation of the bride. Why is that? Because it represents here. We, we see the bride coming to the bridegroom who's standing there receiving this bride dressed in white to represent purity. This is the same picture that we see here as Paul instructs the church and instructs husbands. He says, this is how we're supposed to do because Christ is doing and has done this for us. So this is to say that oftentimes things are happening in our lives that we would wish to pray away. We would hope that they would disappear. But the purpose many times are that they are working exactly the way that God intends in order to purify, sanctify his bride on his receipt. And why is this? It's so we can have great eternal joy. And our means to joy is through trusting in Christ and prayer in each and every circumstance. I mean, this is what Jesus says to do. We're called to be a people of prayer. We're called to pray. Lift our prayers to God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christian, what is your prayer life like? What do you do in tough circumstances? I mean, how often are you going to the Lord to, to pray and give thanks, to ask him to change you, maybe not the things around you? How often are you going to God and saying, your will be done in my life. Christ be glorified through all things. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Whatever I have, pour it out for you, God. Whoever I am, use it 
for your glory. I mean, is that the way that we pray as God's people today? My fear is that we just get shuffled from one thing to the next. We, we live in this very fast-paced, busy world. I mean, I, I'm guilty of it as well. We move from one thing to the next and the next opportunity and next thing, especially when you have small children in the house. It, I mean, it can just feel as if like, there's no time for anything. And as I've encouraged you week after week to ensure that you have time for reading God's word, let me now, based on this text, encourage you to ensure that you have time for meaningful, contemplative prayer. Now, that's also included with the instruction to pray earnestly, pray without ceasing. What I think that means is we just pray, like while we're going through our day. We don't have to stop and make a special time every single moment, but we talk to the Lord throughout our day. Going into a meeting, Lord, would you just help me as I'm walking in this? Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. We're going to a restaurant that we frequent often. Lord, would you just give me an opportunity to evangelize today? Yeah, I, a table for two, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be like a stop moment. It's a as-we-go moment to pray earnestly through the power of the Spirit working in and through us to our Lord. I just want to encourage you. Take time to pray. Set a side time. And then let that especially be a launch pad for praying earnestly without ceasing throughout. See, this is the key to joy. It's a continued relationship with God through Christ and Christ alone. We have this opportunity as God's people to be reconciled to our creator through Christ. And listen, I want to make a couple of just real applications for our church. I mean, there's many situations in this church alone. Some, as we've prayed before, are dealing with infertility issues. Uh, some are dealing with marital conflict. Some are dealing with health struggles. Uh, some are dealing with uh, friends or family that have that have walked away, that have abandoned the faith. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And as your pastors, the, the elders, we, we pray for you. That's why we want to know these, these needs, and we want to we know your situation, and why we take time to, to aim to be intentional with you and shepherd you well, because we want to know how to pray for you. I mean, there's just there's so many things that, that we could, could hang our hat of sorrow on in this life. And we could easily walk out the door forgetting that it's there and just live our lives in a way that just says, I'm sorrowful. There's no reason for joy within my life, but let me just encourage you. There's always reason for joy if you are his. I mean, even for those that may not think of any immediate situation in their lives, the uh, famous 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal uh, once wrote, 
Of all the creatures in this world, man is at the same time the creature of highest grandeur and of the worst misery. And here's why. He has the ability to contemplate a better existence than he presently enjoys. Meaning we can always think of a situation better than the one we're currently in. And we can just conjure up sorrow. We can conjure up unhappiness if we think long enough. But my encouragement, my challenge, my exhortation to you is to feast your eyes, gaze upon Christ and Christ alone. In all things, it is him. I want to encourage you today that because Jesus lives, we can have eternal hope. I mean, the greatest tragedy, the greatest sorrow in all of history is the one thing that provided us the greatest hope, the greatest joy, eternal joy. So how much more can your situation bring joy in a way that praises God? Listen, if there's hope, we can endure anything. And I think as Christians, especially those of the reform camp, sometimes we walk around just grumpy, just grumpy people. You know, always worried about, well, they said this, or they, I can't believe this. And, and I'm all about, like, let's stand for truth. Let's make war against the principalities of the darkness, spirits of this age. But let's not be a people that are grumpy, miserable, and unpleasant to be around all the time. Let's be a people that are obedient to the instruction of our Savior, that we can have a joy that is found in Christ. And because of that, we can live in a way that brings glory to him. J.C. Ryle once said, that religion which makes people melancholy and miserable and wretched looking is a very low type of Christianity. And far below the standard of him who wished joy to be full. End quote. Is your joy full today? I mean, do you have security in Christ? Let me just say to those that may not be believers in here while the Christian's sorrow will be turned to joy, your joy will be turned to sorrow. Whatever you may be enjoying in this world, without Christ, you will face eternal sorrow, suffering, destruction, everlasting torment, where the worm will not die, meaning it goes on forever and ever. And I, I want that for none. I want that for, for no man, no woman. No child. Where is your hope found? Repent and believe in Jesus Christ today. I mean, he is the only hope you have in life and death. He is our only hope. He is the only source of everlasting joy. 
And so Christian, rest upon that today. Let that carry you throughout this day and beyond. I mean, what a week, right, to have a text like this laid out in front of us. Thanksgiving. I mean, there's many things to be thankful for in this life, but there are so many more things to be thankful for as God's people. Amen? Let us live that way. I challenge you this week to to not complain about anything. To be joyful. To see joy. To find joy in Christ and what he's accomplished for you. Try it this week. We'll see what happens. We pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful, God, that we have the opportunity as your people now, in this moment, to be tethered to an everlasting joy as we are tethered to Christ. It is through him and him alone that we can even begin to say that there is hope. I pray for anyone under the sound of my voice that does not know you through Christ, that they have not placed their faith in Christ and Christ alone. God, would you extend your hand of mercy? Would you penetrate their hearts? May they be regenerated. May you give them the heart of flesh today. May they respond to the truth of the gospel that Christ came to do what they cannot. May they repent and turn away from their sin and pursue the Savior that is everlasting. May we as Christians, as your people, may we live in a way that admonishes and adorns the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we not be a miserable, grumpy people. And when we're asked, may we say we have hope and we have joy because of Christ and Christ alone. And it is in his name that I pray. Amen.